So I hope everybody's doing well today. Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Sunday, May 16th, 2021, and we are live. So we have a jam-packed show uh, for you today. You know, Friday, uh, May 14th, I was on Roland Martin Unfiltered. I'm usually a panelist on each Friday. So we had a short panel discussion, a shorter panel discussion, because Roland was on location in Houston, Texas. So we have an excerpt of what happened there. But also, uh, you know, this past week, I did not get a chance to talk about uh, May 13th. May 13th, 1846, uh, the U.S. declared war against Mexico. And this began the Mexican-American War, okay, which started uh, uh, the U.S. declared uh, war on Mexico May 13th, 1846. And this was over a territorial dispute. You know, uh, the U.S. wanted to expand westward. And that territory was owned by uh, Mexico. All right. So we're going to. So all this history is connected. You've heard me talk about this before. All this history is connected. And uh, we're going to talk uh, some about slavery and the Mexican-American War of 1846. Slavery and the Mexican-American War of 1846. It's a really, really deep history here. And this has a lot to do with the way things are today and some of the feelings that uh, Mexicans have against the U.S. Uh, because the Mexican-American War, it lasted two years, 1846 to 1848, and is also going to um, bring about the expansion of slavery uh, westward uh, in this country. And it's also going to bring about the uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which went farther than the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. And then, then we know that you're going to have a civil war in 1861. But uh, you have the U.S. wanting to you, you have Europeans in general want to take over the entire North American continent. And you're going to uh, the, the Mexican-American War is going to end with what's known as the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1846. And this in this treaty, the U.S. is going to get the territory that becomes California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah and Nevada. OK, they get all of this out of uh, the Treaty of uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo. So. It's a, it's a really, really deep uh, history there. So we'll talk some about that. And then uh, on Friday's show, Friday, uh, May 14th, I talked about a story that was that Mother Jones broke. And uh, they talked, uh, I saw a number of different articles dealing with this, but this deals with uh, a leaked video from a uh, dark money group. Uh, this is uh, Heritage, Act, Heritage Action which is a sister organization to the Heritage Foundation. But uh, um, a leaked video from a dark money group uh, where the CEO, uh, Jessica Anderson, bragged about writing GOP voter suppression bills, bragged about writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country. All right, so we know that these bills are in 47 states, um, the 47 uh, state legislatures across the country that are being pushed by Republicans. Uh, approximately 361 bills, almost 400 bills as of uh, March 24th. The uh, Brennan Center for Justice has been tracking uh, these various voter restriction bills. 
Uh, and a lot of people have been asking, well, how were they able to coordinate all of this so quickly? Okay. Well, you had uh, an organization that is financing this, uh, uh, Heritage Action. Uh, they're financing this and they are crafting uh, these policies and uh, pressuring uh, uh, governors to hurry up and sign them quickly once they pass the, the state legislature. This is what happened in Georgia with uh, Governor Brian Kemp. As you've heard me talk about before on this show, uh, Brian Kemp signed uh, SB 202 uh, within an hour of it passing the uh, state legislature, the Georgia state legislature. So we'll talk some about this. Now, on the last word on MSNBC on Friday, May, uh, May 14th, uh, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson was uh, interviewed by Ali Velshi. Ali Velshi was sitting there for Lawrence O'Donnell on the last word, and they talked about this uh, revelation uh, that came out. Okay, so we'll discuss some of that as well. We'll let you hear what Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson had to say. Then um, on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday, one of the things we talked about was um, the hearing that took place in the House of Representatives. It was, uh, and this is this is dealing with the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection. And you have some Republicans who have amnesia and uh, don't want to, and, and now they're saying the insurrection, it wasn't an insurrection, insurrection didn't take place. Uh, you have uh, Representative uh, uh, Adam, you have Representative uh, Andrew Clyde uh, out of uh, Georgia who uh, said basically if you did not see the video, if you did not know the video was from January 6th, you would think it was a, no, a normal tourist visit, a normal tourist visit. Okay, even though 140 officers were uh, injured and one died from injuries uh, that he suffered from the insurrection. So we talked about this uh, on, on Friday. So I'll let you hear an excerpt of uh, what we discussed. Uh, multiple Republican members of Congress on Wednesday, um, that was Wednesday, uh, May 12th, offered a false retelling of the devastating events that occurred during the Capitol riot, with one of them calling the entire event a bold-faced lie, quote-unquote a bold-faced lie, that more closely resembled a normal tourist visit than a deadly attack. During the House Oversight Committee hearing on the January 6th uh, riot, Representative Andrew Clyde, Republican of Georgia, said the House floor was not breached and that the supporters of uh, former President uh, Trader-in-Chief Benedict Donald, Donald Trump who stormed the Capitol behaved, quote unquote, in an orderly fashion, in an orderly fashion. Now, he's correct. They did not. The insurrections did not breach the House floor, but they did breach the Senate floor. OK, so you have a bunch of revisionist history that's that's taking place. So we'll discuss that. And then also 17 GOP governors are punishing the poor and putting an early end to the additional three hundred dollars per week being given to uh, unemployed uh, Americans, all right? Uh, instead of them calling for raising the uh, minimum wage, raising the federal minimum wage, uh, they want to hurry up and, and open everything back up, push people back to work, but they don't want to address the fact that there's a lack of uh, childcare and a lack of affordable childcare. They don't want to look at various reasons why people may not be able to go back to work, but they just want to take away the 
uh, uh, extra $300 a week in uh, uh, federal unemployment insurance. So uh, Joy Reid on MSNBC had something to say about that as well. So we'll discuss that also. Now, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events in history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T. The 22828 is the sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T. The 22828, the sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com to uh, sign up for our email newsletter there as well. Okay. All right. Uh, if you'd like to sign information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, or at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, right on the homepage. If you do it through Cash App, be sure to type in dollar sign the AHN show, S H O W. It'll say Michael and it'll show my picture there also. All right, you can still register for the online course that I teach on Saturday, Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We had a great class uh, yesterday. Uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. We deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We deal with ancient Africa, ancient Kemet, Egypt, uh, Nubia, Ta-Nehisi, uh, Ethiopia, etc. We deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. And... Uh, what the Moors took into Europe, the teachings from ancient Africa, the Nile Valley region of Africa, they take this into Europe and this brings Europe out of the dark ages. All right. So we do the classes live and they're all recorded. They're all archived. So you can go back and watch them over and over again, even if you can't uh, join us live in class. All right. Uh, it's regularly $130 on sale, $80. We just posted the link here. You can also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com and you can register there. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content. And you can watch the content from uh, uh, last Saturday's class. Next class is Saturday, May 22nd, 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. All right. Uh, so let's jump into this uh, before the break. Uh, let's jump into this story here dealing with the uh, Mexican-American War. Okay. And the Mexican-American War, this is taking place uh, during slavery here in the U.S. This is before the Civil War starts in 1861. Uh, the Mexican-American War begins May 13th, 1846. OK, so uh, this past week, May 13th, was the anniversary of the of, of the beginning of the Mexican-American War and the U.S. declaring war on Mexico. Uh, this is before the Republican Party is even founded. The Republican Party is not founded until 1854. This is 1846. OK, so you have the Whig Party, W.H.I.G., the Whig Party, which is going to die out in the 1850s. And you have the Democratic Party at this time. So uh, the Mexican-American War in uh, History.com has uh, some good information on this. And we're, we're going to go to clip one here in just a second, Jalen, before the break. 
the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848 marked the first U.S. armed conflict chiefly fought on foreign soil, chiefly fought on foreign soil. It pitted a politically divided and militarily unprepared Mexico against the expansionist-minded administration of U.S. President James K. Polk. Now, you don't hear a lot about James K. Polk, okay, but his involvement in the Mexican-American War, uh, you know, really cements him in history. Uh, and, and President Polk believed the United States had a manifest destiny, a manifest destiny. And this dealt with uh, the uh, this dealt with westward expansion of the U.S. And, and basically you had um, Europeans that wanted to take over the entire North American continent. OK. And take it over from I mean, they already stole a lot of the land from Native Americans and African people who are already here. And, and, and then at the same time. Uh, uh, Texas wins its independence from Mexico in 1836. Now, we know Mexico had abolished slavery under uh, the second president of Mexico, Vicente Guerrero. And, uh, and this is about 1828, 1829. And Vicente Guerrero was uh, of uh, he was a former slave. OK, Vicente Guerrero was was uh, of African descent. And he's the second president of Mexico. And when he becomes president, he abolishes slavery in Mexico. All right, so this is this is a deep, deep history. Um, I want to go to this clip here. Uh, let me squeeze this in before the break. This is from uh, PBS uh, American Experience: How the Mexican American War, how the Mexican American War affected slavery. Okay, let's go to this clip, Jalen. In the spring of 1846, the United States went to war with Mexico hoping to gain vast territories in the Southwest. Abolitionists bitterly opposed the war as an attempt to expand slave territory, but they were swept away by a national tide of patriotic enthusiasm. The Mexican War ultimately increases the size of the United States by virtually 100%. It almost doubles the size. And the big question is, what are we going to do with all this land acquired from Mexico? Slave owners want it all to be slave territory. Uh, Anti-slave northerners all wanted it to be free territory. The Mexican War unshucked slavery. It just took it out of its shell. All those efforts to contain this issue couldn't work anymore. While Southerners saw the expansion of slave territory as a guarantee that the institution would continue to thrive, Northerners viewed those plans as a conspiracy to build a true slave empire. Northerners become convinced that Southerners are hell-bent on moving slavery to every part of the country. And now you have this political fight going on over what's going to happen with that land. And that becomes very, very divisive very quickly. Through 1847 and 1848, the question of the new territories festered. And the answer to that question lay the country's destiny. In the fall of 1850, the country stepped back from the brink when Congress adopted what became known as the Great Compromise. In return for allowing California to join the Union as a free state, Southerners were granted the prospect of someday forming slave states in Utah and New Mexico. 
But for Northerners, the most galling provision in the Compromise was the Fugitive Slave Law. The law stipulated that any citizen, North or South, could be rounded up and forced to catch a suspected runaway. Fugitive Slave Law. Pause it right there. We're gonna uh, we're gonna start this from the beginning on the other side of the break. So the uh, Mexican American War of 1846 to 1848 leads to the Compromise of 1850, and then the Compromise of 1850 is the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which uh, intensifies um, the abolitionist movement. Okay, so we'll deal with this on the other side of the break. List to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, the Future Radio. Hey, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Sunday, May 26, 2021, and we are live. Now, remember, we are here six days a week. We're here Monday through Friday. Uh, 11 p.m. to 12 midnight Eastern Standard Time, and we're here Sundays, um, 11, uh, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sunday. So I've been doing Sundays on 9 p.m. on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF for five years. It's five years this past April, okay? And um, we started doing six days a week, uh, October uh, 12, 2020. It was on... Um, Indigenous Peoples Day, also known as Columbus Day. All right, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. If you have a quick question or comment, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. If you have a quick question or comment, uh, we're talking about uh, May 13th was the anniversary of uh, the beginning of the Mexican-American War and the U.S. declaring war against Mexico. And this is over territorial dispute. The U.S. wants uh, westward expansion. This is uh, territory uh, that's uh, owned by Mexico. We also know there was uh, also a dispute over Texas as well. Okay, and Texas wins, wins its independence from Mexico in 1836. Um, right before the break, we were, I shared a clip from uh, PBS uh, American Experience, how the Mexican-American War affected slavery. We're gonna go back to that clip in just a minute here, Jalen. Um, so, the the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848 affected efforts to abolish slavery. While driven by economic ambitions and a sense that the United States was destined to span the entire continent because these Europeans want to take over the entire North American continent. It was not. And now, this is after the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, which doubles the, the, the territory of the U.S. The U.S. gets 828,000 square miles of land in the um, uh, Louisiana Purchase of 1803. That that comes about because the, the, the Haitians beat the hell out, out of the French during the Haitian Revolution of 1791 to uh, 1803. And the the uh, the French and Napoleon, they're, they're trying to raise money. So they sell um, uh, all this land in Louisiana Purchase. They sell it for about $5 million to the U.S. So you have one thief selling the land to another thief. This is what it, this is what the, this is what you have. You have one thief selling the land to another thief. Um, isn't it illegal to receive stolen goods? Isn't that illegal to receive stolen goods? I'm just curious. I mean, I, I, that's that's what I that's what I see on Starsky and Hutch, right? That's what I, that's what, that's what I see on TV. Isn't it illegal to receive stolen goods? So you have so you have the French 
who steal the land from Native Americans, and there's African people here as well. They're going to sell the land to these other thieves called the United States of America in the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. So the Louisiana Purchase doubles the territory of the U.S., and the U.S. is going to carve about 15 states out of this land. Then we see the uh, Mexican-American War. The U.S. is going to get, uh, at the end of the war, the, the, through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848, which is what ends the Mexican-American War, the U.S. is going to get the uh, territories that are now California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Nevada. All right. And, and the Mexico is going to lose about a third of their territory. So the uh, while driven by economic ambitions and a sense that the United States was destined to span the entire continent, the Mexican-American War also raised the issue of how acquisition of such large territory would affect the balance between slaveholding states and free states, between slaveholding states and free states. Now, the congressional uh, response was the Great Compromise of 1850, which we talked about briefly before the break. Now, only uh, the Compromise of 1850 not only allowed for the possible creation of new slaveholding states, but also placed legal demands upon Northerners to aid in the recapture of fugitive slaves. So because of the uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, this is going to cause more runaway slaves to go into Canada because now, because of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and Article 4, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution laid the foundation for the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 and the one in 1850. But, be, but, but now, because uh, uh, people were, were going into, people could go into this Northern Territory, that's free territory, recapture these runaway slaves and take them back into um, um, slaveholding territory, okay? So this is going to cause more runaway slaves to now go into Canada. All right, uh, I want to go back to this uh, clip here. Uh, this is from uh, PBS, uh, Public Broadcasting System, uh, American Experience, uh, how the Mexican-American War affected uh, slavery. Let's go back to this clip, Jay. In the spring of 1846, the United States went to war with Mexico, hoping to gain vast territories in the Southwest. Abolitionists bitterly opposed the war as an attempt to expand slave territory, but they were swept away by a national tide of patriotic enthusiasm. The Mexican War ultimately increases the size of the United States by virtually 100%, it almost doubles the size. And the big question is, what are we going to do with all this land acquired from Mexico? Slave owners wanted all to be slave territory. Anti-slavery northerners all wanted it to be free territory. The Mexican War unshucked slavery. It just took it out of its shell. All those efforts that contain this issue couldn't work anymore. While Southerners saw the expansion of slave territory as a guarantee that the institution would continue to thrive, Northerners saw those plans as a conspiracy to build a true slave empire. Northerners become convinced that Southerners are hell-bent on moving slavery to every part of the country. And now you have this political fight going on over what's going to happen with that land. 
And that becomes very, very divisive very quickly. Through 1847 and 1848, the question of the new territories festered. And the answer to that question lay the country's destiny. In the fall of 1850, the country stepped back from the brink when Congress adopted what became known as the Great Compromise. In return for allowing California to join the Union as a free state, Southerners were granted the prospect of someday forming slave states in Utah and New Mexico. But for Northerners, the most galling provision in the Compromise was the Fugitive Slave Law. The law stipulated that any citizen, North or South, could be rounded up and forced to catch a suspected runaway. He virtually legitimates the kidnapping of free blacks. It means that a Southerner can hunt down any black in free soil and say, you're my slave. And most uh, significantly in one sense, any white can be deputized at any moment, day or night, and is required to help a roundup the suspected fugitive slave. When the compromise was finally sealed in late September, abolitionists horrified. Twenty years of struggle had yielded not emancipation, but a million more slaves, and a political agreement to preserve the institution in the United States forever. The petitions, the campaigns, the rallies, the marches, the meetings and resolutions and fundraisers, the mobs, the beatings, all of the sacrifices had been suddenly dealt away by a handful of men in Washington. Okay, pause right there, Jason. Thank you. All right, so this ties um, all this history together. The abolitionist movement, the war of uh, the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848. Now, just incidentally, right, when I was in high school, I didn't like none of this stuff. Just, just to be honest with you, I didn't do well in history in high school. <laughs> I didn't like any of this stuff. I found it boring, okay? I started studying history in, in college because uh, um, I was studying African history, and uh, we had the uh, the Afrocentric movement, and we had conscious hip-hop and things like this, and I'm listening to Malcolm X and, and Minister Farrakhan and different things like this, right? So in, in, in high school, I didn't like history, okay? So they were teaching it the wrong way. I'm serious. They were teaching it the wrong way. All right, so the... Compromise of 1850, we'll go to the phone lines in just a minute. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a, a question or comment. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. Uh, if you saw the movie Harriet, the movie Harriet, about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, they discussed the, uh, the, the, the Compromise of 1850 is a backdrop uh, of... Uh, the movie, okay, and this intensified the abolitionist movement, but it also then required white people in the north, they could be deputized to help go round up, recapture runaway slaves from the south who go into the north, even though the northern states, most of these are free states at this time, majority of them are free states at this time, they could be deputized to go round up uh, runaway slaves and take them back into southern territory. So this is going to cause 
more runaway slaves that then go into Canada. All right, the um, let's see here. Let me go back to this. Uh, History.com has a really good article dealing with this uh, Mexican-American war, Mexican-American war from History.com. History.com is the official website of uh, the History Channel. So the uh, I want to look at this right quick and we'll go to the phone lines. The Mexican Mexican American War, 1846 to 1848, marked the first U.S. armed conflict chiefly fought on foreign soil. It pitted a politically divided and militarily unprepared uh, Mexico against the expansionist minded administration of U.S. President James K. Polk, who believed. Uh, the United States had a manifest destiny, a manifest destiny. We'll talk about manifest destiny in uh, just a minute here. Uh, a manifest destiny to spread across the continent to the Pacific Ocean. Now, a, a, a border skirm along the Rio Grande uh, started off the fighting and was followed by a series of U.S. victories. When the dust cleared, Mexico had lost about one third of its territory including nearly all of present-day California, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico, okay? And, and the U.S. gets all this land, um, also Colorado. Uh, the U.S. gets all this land in what's known as the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848. Okay, let's go to the uh, phone lines. Let's go to Sally Line 1. Hey, Sally, uh, welcome to the African History Network show. Uh, thanks for holding. Tell us where you're calling from, Sally. I'm calling from another state. You come. You, you, you calling from where? Sunday. Calling from where? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. You say you calling from okay, where? Can you hear me? I can Ohio. Hear we call it from Ohio. Okay, you're Ohio. our neighbors. You're our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Ohio. Yeah, we're but in Michigan. What I'm, I'm not calling. A, I'm not calling about that. I'm calling about that Mexican -Amer uh, American War that right. was um, fought, and I don't know if you remember it or not, but the uh, America lost. Five guys, you remember those five guys, and you might know their names, they were uh, hunters, and they were singers, and that kind of thing, and they just knew they were going to win the war, but they lost it. So what happened, those states of Texas and Arizona, whatever that they uh, did uh, know that we know of, they had to be paid for by the America. So America lost the war, and they had to pay for that land, which we now know as the uh, Arizona and, you know, Texas and a little bit of California. But all that land, they lost and had to pay for it. And the five guys whom I can't think of their name now, but they're older men. Of course, they're in the industry. You go down to Texas, they have their name everywhere, but they lost the war themselves. Who, who lost the war? America lost to the Mexican. America paid for that that uh, land here in America. They lost the war, so they had to pay for those what we now know as states. Okay. All right. Thanks for calling. Keep listening. You're welcome. Yep. Keep listening. Okay. Uh, let's continue. Uh, Mexico lost the Mexican-American War. Just so we're clear on this. Uh, we'll, we'll continue this discussion. Okay. Uh, I want to, uh, I want to continue here. Uh, let's go back to this article here, Mexican American war. And I, I've got some other articles. We'll, we'll, we'll 
delve into this a little bit, and we'll talk about the Compromise of 1850 as well. Uh, when we look at the cause of the Mexican-American War, this ties into Manifest Destiny. Texas gained its independence from Mexico in 1836. Initially, the uh, United States declined to incorporate uh, Texas into the Union, largely because northern political interests were against the addition of a new slave state because Texas was a slaveholding state. When you look at the when you look at the history of Texas, well, let me continue. The Mexican government was also encouraging border raids and warning that any attempt to annex uh, annex uh, Texas would lead to war. So we know Texas is going to is going to win its independence from uh, Mexico, um, and and Mexico had already abolished slavery. Okay, that's about 1828, 1829, with Vicente Guerrero, uh, who was a former slave. He was of African descent. Vicente Guerrero becomes the second president of Mexico. When you look at the Texas Rangers, I've done an entire presentation dealing with this a couple of years ago. When you look at the Texas Rangers, not the baseball team, but the Texas Rangers, the state police, law enforcement, you know, like Walker, Texas Ranger, the TV show with Chuck Norris, and then the old radio show Tales of the Texas Rangers with uh, Joel McRae as Ranger Jace Pearson. I'm an old radio show fan, so I've listened to thousands of old radio shows. Uh, the Texas Rangers get their start as bounty hunters hired by slave owners in southern states of the U.S. to go into Texas and I'm sorry, to go into Mexico and retrieve runaway slaves. The, uh, you have um, uh, slave owners like in Texas. They're going to hire the Texas Rangers the, who start out as bounty hunters to go into Mexico because Mexico is free territory. Go into Mexico to retrieve these runaway slaves. There was there wasn't just a underground railroad going north. OK, it was starts about 1830, 1831. There wasn't just an underground railroad going north. There wasn't just uh, runaway slaves running into Florida up until about 1821 because Florida was free territory. Florida was Spanish territory. So you have a lot of them going into Florida. This is why uh, the U.S. Uh, wanted uh, Florida um, as as uh, U.S. territory because they were losing a lot of you know slaves who were running to Florida. You also have an underground railroad going into Mexico and is estimated is known as the Southern Underground Railroad. And it's estimated that uh, between 5,000 to 10,000 um, runaway slaves run into uh, Mexico as well. There's a there's an article from uh, History dot com. I talked about this uh, two, I think, two or three years ago, uh, dealing with the Southern uh, Underground Railroad. Okay, and I'm going to see if we can pull this up here. The Southern Underground Railroad, and this is, yeah, uh, October 24, 2018. This article came out from um, history.com. So I talked about it when it came out. The little known Underground Railroad that ran south to Mexico. The The little known Underground Railroad that ran south into Mexico. Now, incidentally, when you look at the founding of Los Angeles, you know, like half the people that found the Los Angeles were of African descent also. Los Angeles, California, half the people that found the Los Angeles, California were of African descent. But the little known underground railroad that ran south to Mexico, unlike the northern free states, Mexico did not agree to return people who had fled slavery. 
Okay, so uh, Mexico was a safe haven as well. This is another reason why. <laughs> this is another reason why the U.S. hated Mexico. Okay, <laughs> this is another reason why they don't, they don't have you know they don't have a problem going to Acapulco and things like this, right? But uh, this is another reason why uh, the U.S. hated Mexico. All right, now uh, the Underground Railroad ran south as well as north for enslaved people in Texas for enslaved people in Texas. Uh, refuge in Canada uh, must have seen, seemed impossibly far away. Fortunately, slavery was illegal in Mexico. Researchers estimate 5,000 to 10,000 people escaped uh, from bondage into Mexico, says Maria Hammack, H-A-M-M-A-C-K, who is writing her dissertation about uh, this topic at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, but she thinks the actual number could be even even higher. Uh, Maria Hammack said these were clandestine routes. And if you got caught, you would be killed and lynched. So most people did not leave a lot of records. Um, there's some evidence that uh, uh, Tejanos or Mexicans in Texas acted as conductors on the southern route of the Underground Railroad by helping uh, people get to Mexico. In addition, Maria Hammack has also identified a black woman and two white men who helped enslaved workers escape and try to find a home uh, for them in Mexico. Okay, uh, now this right here is a picture of a slave auction in Austin, Texas. Uh, now Mexico abolished slavery in 1829, as we talked about, when Texas was still part of the country. Uh, in in prompting and uh, in, in, in part prompting white slaveholding immigrants to fight for independence in the Texas Revolution. Now, once they formed the Republic of Texas in 1836, they made slavery legal again, and it continued to be legal when Texas joined the U.S. as a state in 1845. Okay, so Texas is going to join the yeah, Texas joins the uh, the U.S. as a state uh, the uh, year before the um, Mexican American War starts. Okay. Uh, enslaved people in Texas were aware that there was a country to the south where they could find different levels of freedom. Though indentured debt servitude existed in Mexico, it was not the same as chattel slavery. So chattel slavery, if you, if you watch the uh, extensive interview I did with Dr. Daryl Scott, Dr. Daryl Scott is a history professor at Howard University. And uh, we uh, we did an interview dealing with uh, the, the myth that the 13th Amendment re-enslaved um, uh, former slaves, re-enslaved African-Americans and led to mass incarceration, all this nonsense. The 13th Amendment is based upon uh, what's known as the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. OK, it did not it did not re-enslave African-Americans, did not lead to uh, mass incarceration. And the 13th Amendment of 1865 um that's adopted in uh december of 1865 mass incarceration doesn't begin until the early 1970s basically with um richard nixon declaring his war on drugs june 17 1971 okay it took 106 years for mass incarceration to start okay so they did it that's just um that's nonsense okay watch the i, I did a two-hour interview with uh, dr daryl scott we go through history and break this down and deal with uh uh population, the the, uh, the uh, prison populations throughout the years, all the types of things like this, okay? Uh, so you can watch that at our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and my YouTube channel, 
Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. All right, uh, we'll go through the phone lines in just a minute here. Let me go back to this article quickly. So a lot of people don't know about the Southern Underground Railroad in, in, uh, in Mexico. Uh, enslaved people in Texas were aware that there was a country to the south where they could find different levels of freedom. Though indentured servitude existed in Mexico, it was not the same as chattel slavery. Chattel slavery, you're enslaved for perpetuity, and your children who are born while you are enslaved, they're slaves as well. Okay. Um, now, Maria Hammock has discovered one runaway uh, slave named Tom who had been enslaved by Sam Houston. Uh, Sam Houston was a president of the Republic of Texas uh, who had fought in the Texas Revolution. Now, once Tom got across the border, the Mexican border, he joined the Mexican military that Sam Houston had fought against. Now, fugitive, uh, fugitive enslaved uh, people, these fugitive enslaved Africans, got to Mexico in many different ways. Some, some went on foot, some went on foot, while others rode horses or snuck aboard ferries bound for Mexican ports. Stories spread about enslaved people who crossed the Rio Grande. Uh, river dividing Texas from uh, Mexico by uh, floating on bales of cotton, floating on bales of cotton. OK. Uh, and several Texas newspapers reported in July 1863 that three enslaved people had escaped this way, floating on bales of cotton. OK, so isn't it interesting that um, they had us uh, picking cotton and a small number of us are going to use cotton to uh escape okay <laughs> we're going to use cotton to escape the other thing is, is so when you study this history you know we were trying to find all different types of ways uh to escape okay to, to escape slavery one of the ways that we did it and one of the reasons why they made it illegal for uh for africans to uh enslaved africans to learn to read and write is because one of the things that we did when we learned to read and write is we wrote our own freedom papers and ran away. And when you're dealing with the uh, paddy rollers, when you're dealing with the uh, the white men who are patrolling the, the roads to uh, looking for runaway slaves and things like this, is a good chance that they were illiterate. So you could give them any piece of paper and say, these are these are my freedom papers. It's a good chance they were illiterate. Most of them couldn't read or write. So, you know, it, one of the things that we one of the things that we did when we learned to read and write and all, usually we had to learn to read and write covertly, except for um, Virginia in Virginia. Up until 1831, it was legal for slaves to read and write and to learn to read and write up until 1830, up, up until 1831. You know what's significant about 1831? The Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831, because Nat Turner was literate. He could read and write after the Nat Turner Rebellion, after they caught uh, the, 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 the people, the, the men with uh, Nat Turner, after he after Nat Turner was caught and executed, uh, the state legislature of Virginia passed a law that made it illegal to teach slaves to read and write. And it made it illegal for them to be able to, to read and write because they realized, oh, OK, uh, he was literate. And see, Nat Turner could read the Bible and he was using the Bible as a as a as a a weapon for liberation and teaching enslaved Africans that they, that they were not supposed to be slaves. All right. So they made, they, they said, no, we, we can't, we can't have this. All right. So, <laughs> um, 
the Nat Turner Rebellion is, is, is very, very interesting. Okay, so you're going to have uh, uh, at least a, a small number of uh, enslaved Africans floating, floating uh, into Mexico on bales of cotton. And several Texas newspapers reported in July 1863 that three enslaved uh, African people had escaped this way, floating on bales of cotton. Now, even if this wasn't logistically possible, the imagery of floating to freedom on a symbol of slavery was strong. <laughs> so read the rest of this article here from History.com, official website of the History Channel. This deals with the little known underground railroad that ran south into uh, Mexico. OK, the little known underground railroad that ran south into Mexico. This is written by Becky Little. This is from October 24th, 2018, updated January 29th, uh, 2021. All right, let's go. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Let's go back to the phone lines. Let's go to Theo line one. Hey, Theo, welcome to the African History Network show. Tell us where you're calling from, Theo. This is Theo Broughton from Hood Research. Thank you. That's right. That's from Hood Research. Okay. Happy Sunday to you. Yeah, and I listen too. to you all the time. Oh. I have three questions. Okay. One, when the Africans escaped, uh, do you have information that uh, they went to Veracruz? Because um, the darker-complected uh, Mexicans seem to uh, be in that area, uh, Veracruz. And also, um, John Horst is a person that Dr. Claude Anderson talks about. Mm -hmm. He said he escaped in Mexico and he was never uh, recovered, never found yeah. or, you know, killed. Or, yeah, John Horst in the, in the Seminole then, Indian Wars. Yeah, John Horst in the Seminole, Seminole yeah. Indian Wars, yes. Uh-huh. And then the last question has to do with, uh, I think you pronounce her name, California. California's name Queen after Khalifa? this African woman. Queen Khalifa? And there's a picture. Queen Khalifa. There's a picture of her. Huh? Queen Khalifa. How you say it? Khalifa. Khalifa. There's a picture of her in um, Sacramento, the mm -hmm. capital of uh, California. So they uh, don't seem to have a problem identifying her, whereas the uh, races in this country don't want us to know any of that. Well, 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 Queen, well, Queen Khalifa, mm -hmm. I, I've done research with Queen Khalifa, most of the research. I've done on her is that she was a mythological queen. Uh, so there may be, it, 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 there could be a relationship. It, it, Cal, the word, I'm, I'm looking for some definitive information. The word California, uh -huh. uh, some people believe the word California is derived from her, her name, Khalifa. That's, 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 that's possible. Right. That's possible. Uh, but most of the information I've seen dealing with Queen Khalifa is that she was a mythological queen as opposed to uh, uh, somebody who actually lived. But, you know, I'm still looking for more definitive information on that. Hmm. Well, we need to find out what that picture is that's in the uh, capital of California, Sacramento. Yeah, okay. Okay. Was, All I right. appreciate it. All right, thanks. Thank All you. Right. Thanks for calling, Theo. Uh, as far as Africans going into Veracruz, Mexico, uh, I'm not exactly sure on that. Now, we do know that also Mexico was Spanish territory. The Spaniards are taking Africans into Mexico, enslaving them. Okay, we know this as well. Um, so, not I'm not specifically sure about Veracruz, Mexico, but we do know there was a population of Africans in um, Mexico for a number of different reasons. Okay, 
for a number of different reasons. And we know that Africans were in, in this land. It, it, the Africans were in North America going back tens of thousands of years ago as well. Uh, this is something that Dr. David M. Hotel talks about uh, in his book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. The First Americans Were Africans, the First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. And he deals with the African presence in um, the uh, territory we call South Carolina going back at least 51,700 years ago. These were the Khoisan. Uh, who are the ancestors to the Anu and the Twa, have the oldest DNA on the planet. They go all around the world. They're all throughout this land. Um, so they were here even before Native Americans came into existence. Uh, we're we're going to get Dr. David M. Hotel back on the show also. Okay, so uh, I know we're coming up here on the break. Uh, so very quickly, uh, we'll continue this on the other side of the break as well. Spring. We'll, we'll continue this uh, as well on the other side of the break. Uh, Nick, um so at 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 when we look at um let me pick this up here all right so uh let me pick up where we left off here all right so um so Texas gained its independence from Mexico in eighteen thirty six initially the United States declined to incorporate it into the union largely because uh, northern political interests were uh, largely because northern political interests were, again, the addition of a new slave state. We're against the addition of a new slave state. Now, can you hear me OK, uh, Jalen? Can you hear me OK? You said my audio is going in and out. Can you hear me OK? OK. OK. All right. Uh, the Mexican government was also encouraging border raids and warning that any attempt at annexation of uh, Texas would lead to war. We're going to continue this on the other side of the break. We'll talk about the Compromise of 1850 also, and then we'll get into these other stories. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, a.m. Superstation of Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation of Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Sunday, uh, May 16th, 2021. And we are live. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a quick question or comment. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a quick question or comment. Uh, so in the first hour, we were talking about um, May 13th was the anniversary of the beginning of the um, Mexican-American War. The U.S. declared war on Mexico. May 13th, 1846. Now, I'm going to go back to clip one, uh, Jalen, in just a minute here. So cue that up, please. Um, so May 13th was the anniversary of this. And we know the Mexican-American War, uh, the U.S. wins the war. Um, Mexico's unprepared uh, for the war. And the U.S. is going to end up getting the territory that um, – uh, today makes up uh, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Utah, and Nevada. Okay, um, this comes about because of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ends the uh, Mexican-American War, and this is going to give the U.S. more land to uh, also uh, have uh, slavery as well. Okay, even though you have uh, a balance between slaveholding states and free states. Uh, but this is going to give the U.S. 
uh, more land to uh, have uh, slavery on. But this is also going to lead to what's known as the uh, Compromise of uh, 1850, the Compromise of 1850. And this leads to the Compromise of 1850 leads to what's known as the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which intensifies um, it, it intensifies uh, slavery. But what it does is it uh, makes it more dangerous for runaway slaves in northern states who ran away from the south and uh, ran away into northern states. And they're going to uh, more of them are going to end up having to go into Canada to uh, escape uh, the U.S. OK, if you saw the movie Harriet, the movie Harriet about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, um, they discuss the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. OK, because that is uh, that was depicted in the movie. OK, and the uh, the fallout from it and a lot of the abolitionists, you know, basically most of the abolitionists felt betrayed uh, because of this uh, Fugitive Slave Act also. All right. So we were discussing that right before the break. And then also uh, in the second hour. Uh, I'll share an excerpt from Roland Martin Unfiltered from Friday, May 14th, when I was a panelist on uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered. And on uh, on Friday, also on my Friday show, we talked about uh, leaked video from uh, Heritage Action, a um, which is the sister organization to the Heritage Foundation, a right wing organization. But leaked video. Uh, uh, reveals a dark money group bragging about writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country. We're going to discuss that as well on MSNBC on Friday on the last word uh, with Lawrence O'Donnell, uh, Michigan State Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson was interviewed by Ali Velshi to uh, discuss this new development also. So we'll talk about that as well. All right. I, I want to go back here to the story here dealing with the uh, Mexican-American War of uh, 1846 to 1848. Okay, I want to go back to this article here from uh, History.com. History.com is the uh, official website of the History Channel. They have a lot of really good articles there at History.com. So uh, Texas gained its independence from Mexico in 1836. Initially, the United States declined to incorporate Texas into the Union, largely because northern political interests were against the addition of a new slave state, like, you know, a lot of abolitionists, things like this. They were against the addition of a of a new slave holding state. Um, the, the Mexican government was also encouraging border raids and warning that any attempt at annexation uh, would lead to war. Now, nonetheless, annexation procedures were quickly initiated after the 1848 election of uh, James Polk as president, who campaigned that Texas should be re-annexed and that the Oregon Territory should be reoccupied. Uh, James Polk also had his eyes on California, New Mexico, and the rest of what is today the U.S. Southwest, the U.S. Southwest. When his offer to purchase those lands were rejected, uh, he instigated a fight when his offer to purchase those lands was rejected. He instigated a fight by moving troops into a disputed zone between the Rio Grande and um, uh, Nueces um, uh, River and the Nueces River, 
that both countries have previously recognized as part of the Mexican state of Coyahula. Uh, uh, so this is a territory dispute that's taking place. The U.S. wants to, Europeans basically want to take over the entire North American continent, okay? And you have this whole notion of what's known as manifest destiny, manifest destiny, okay? Now, I want to uh, reference some information on manifest destiny. Then we're going to go back to clip one. Uh, this is from a uh, 10-minute guide to U.S. history from Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica. It gives you a good, good overview of U.S. history, and it goes chronologically. Uh, 10-minute U.S. guide to U.S. history. Now, it's going to take you longer than 10 minutes to read it, but it's a, it gives you a good chronology and a good basic understanding of U.S. history. On page 64, they talk about manifest destiny. And that term is first used by John L. O'Sullivan. John L. O'Sullivan, the editor of a magazine that served as an organ for the Democratic Party and of a partisan newspaper. He first wrote about Manifest Destiny in 1845. Now, this is the year before the Mexican-American War starts. But at the time, he did not think the words were profound. Rather than being coined, rather than the term Manifest Destiny being coined, the phrase was buried halfway through the third paragraph of a long essay in, July, in the July-August issue of the United States Magazine and Democratic Review on the necessity of uh, annexing Texas and the ine ine inevitability of American expansion. Now, John L. O'Sullivan was protesting European meddling in American affairs, especially by France and England, which he said were acting quote, for the avowed object of thwarting our policy and hampering our power, limiting our greatness and checking the fulfillment and checking the fulfillment of our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions, end quote. So basically you have white people in the U.S. think think they're ordained by God to take over the, the, the rest of this land here in, in North America. All right. Um, I want to go back to uh, clip one here. This is from uh, the American experience from uh, PBS public broadcasting system. Okay. PBS. And this clip here is how the Mexican American war affected slavery, how the Mexican American war affected slavery. Mexican Mexican American war was 1846 to 1848. It started May 13th, 1848. And uh, it affected efforts to abolish slavery. While driven by economic ambitions and a sense that the United States was, quote unquote, destined to span the entire continent because of manifest destiny, the, the uh, Mex Mexican-American War also raised the issue of how acquisition of such a large territory, how acquisition of such a large territory would affect the balance between slaveholding states and free states. The congressional response was the Great Compromise of 1850, and the, the Compromise of 1850 not only allowed for the possible creation of new slaveholding states, but also placed legal demands upon northerners in free states 
to aid in the recapture of fugitive slaves. And this is going to cause more runaway slaves to then go into Canada. Let's go to uh, clip one, Jalen. In the spring of 1846, the United States went to war with Mexico, hoping to gain vast territories in the Southwest. Abolitionists bitterly opposed the war as an attempt to expand slave territory, but they were swept away by a national tide of patriotic enthusiasm. The Mexican War ultimately increases the size of the United States by virtually 100%. It almost doubles the size. And the big question is, what are we going to do with all this land acquired from Mexico? Slave owners want it all to be slave territory. Anti-slavery northerners all wanted it to be free territory. The Mexican War unshucked slavery. It just took it out of its shell. All those efforts to contain this issue couldn't work anymore. While Southerners saw the expansion of slave territory as a guarantee that the institution would continue to thrive, Northerners viewed those plans as a conspiracy to build a true slave empire. Northerners become convinced that Southerners are hell-bent on moving slavery to every part of the country. And now you have this political fight going on over what's going to happen with that land. And that becomes very, very divisive very quickly. Through 1847 and 1848, the question of the new territories festered. And the answer to that question lay the country's destiny. In the fall of 1850, the country stepped back from the brink when Congress adopted what became known as the Great Compromise. In return for allowing California to join the Union as a free state, Southerners were granted the prospect of someday forming slave states in Utah and New Mexico. But for Northerners, the most galling provision in the Compromise was the Fugitive Slave Law. The law stipulated that any citizen, North or South, could be rounded up and forced to catch a suspected runaway. The Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 virtually legitimates the kidnapping of free blacks. It means that a Southerner can hunt down any black in free soil and say, you're my slave. And most uh, significantly in one sense, any white can be deputized at any moment, day or night, and is required to help around up the suspected fugitive slave. When the compromise was finally sealed in late September, abolitionists were horrified. Twenty years of struggle had yielded not emancipation, but a million more slaves, and a political agreement to preserve the institution in the United States forever. The petitions, the campaigns, the rallies, the marches, the meetings and resolutions and fundraisers, the mobs, the beatings, all of the sacrifices had been suddenly dealt away by a handful of men in Washington. Okay. Uh, that's from the American Experience from um, PBS, Public Broadcasting System. Uh, you can find that at pbs.org. All right, now, um, we're going to talk about the Compromise of 1850 here in just a minute. Uh, Juneteenth is coming up. I will be 
speaking at the Juneteenth um, event in Atlanta. I talked to Bob Johnson. So, um, not Bob Johnson from BET, but Bob Johnson, who uh, organizes the Juneteenth event. So, I, I'll be down there uh, in Atlanta. And I got to look at the exact dates again. I don't remember. But also, if you want me to do a presentation uh, dealing with uh, Black Wall Street, because the 100th anniversary of the uh, race massacre in uh, North Tulsa, Black Wall Street, is coming up uh, May 31st and January and June 1st. Uh, if you want me to do a presentation on Black Wall Street or uh, Juneteenth and the history of Juneteenth, uh, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, uh, ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com. And it can be a virtual presentation also, okay? Uh, and we'll make that happen. All right, because I, I've done lectures on both of them. Juneteenth is a fascinating, fascinating history, and then that ties into the Great Migration in 1915 to 1970 also. All right, and also you can still register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays. We have a new section to start up on Saturdays, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understand the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. We deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. And we also deal with the um, ancient African presence in this land we call the United States of America and in the Americas going back tens of thousands of years as well. We meet on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we do the class live. All the sessions are archived, so you can go back and watch them over and over again. You can watch them on demand or you can watch us live. And uh, it's a nine-week uh, online course. I do it, we do it Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This class is Saturday, May 22nd. I just posted the link here or visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can register there. Uh, class is uh, regularly $130 on sale, $80. And you'll still have access to the course content uh, even after the class is over with. All right. Uh, I want to go back to this article here dealing with uh, the Mexican, Mexican-American Mexican War, then we'll talk about the compromise of uh, 1850. I keep wanting to say compromise of 1877. That's, that, that's what ended Reconstruction, the compromise of 1877. This is another compromise, compromise of uh, 1850. Now, when we look at the beginning of the Mexican-American War, uh, on April 25th, 1846, uh, Mexican cavalry attacked a group of U.S. soldiers in the disputed zone under the command of General Zachary Taylor, who's going to become president also, uh, under the command of General Zachary Taylor, killing about a dozen of them. Now, they then laid siege to an American fort along the Rio Grande. Uh, Zachary Taylor uh, called in reinforcements and with the help of superior rifles and artillery, was able to defeat the uh, Mexicans at uh, the battles of uh, uh, Palo Alto and uh, Resaca del, uh, de la Palma. Now, following those battles, uh, President James Polk told the U.S. Congress that the cup of forbearance, the cup of forbearance has been exhausted even before Mexico passed the boundary of the United States and in, uh, invaded our territory and shed American blood upon American soil, okay? Following those battles, President James Polk uh, told the U.S. Congress that the uh, cup of, the cup of forbearance has been exhausted even before Mexico passed the boundary of the United States, invaded our territory, and shed American blood upon American soil, 
end quote. Now, two days later, on May 13th, 1846, May 13th, 1846, um, Congress declared war on Mexico despite opposition from some northern lawmakers. No official declaration of war ever came from Mexico. Okay. Now, at the time, um, so we have the U.S. Army advancing into Mexico. At the time, only about 75,000 Mexican citizens lived north of the Rio Grande. As a result, U.S. forces led by Colonel Stephen W. Kearney and uh, uh, Commodore Robert F. Stockton were able to conquer those lands with minimal resistance. Uh, Zachary Taylor, General Zachary Taylor, likewise had little trouble advancing, and, and he captured uh, Monterey in September of 1846. With the losses adding up, Mexico turned to old standby General Antonio uh, Lopez de Santa Ana. Okay, Santa Ana, uh, the charismatic strongman who had been living in exile in Cuba. Okay, and when you deal with uh, um, uh, the the Battle of the Alamo and all this, you you read about Santa Ana as well. Now, Santa Ana convinced uh, President James Polk that that if allowed to return to Mexico, if allowed to return to Mexico, he would uh, end the war on terms favorable to the United States. But when uh, Santa Ana arrived, he immediately double crossed President James Polk by taking control of the Mexican army and leading it into battle. At the Battle of Buena, uh, Buena Vista in February 1847, uh, Santa Ana suffered heavy casualties and was forced to withdraw. Despite the loss, he assumed the Mexican presidency uh, the following month, okay, in, in March of 1847. We'll continue this on the other side of the break. We'll get to these other topics. We'll also deal with the Compromise of 1850 as well, which included the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation of Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation of Future Radio. Hey, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Sunday, May 16th, 2021. And we're live. Hope everybody's doing well. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a quick question or comment. Um, and during the break, let's see, some people said they need me to post information again for the online course. So uh, it's also on our, we're going to post this link here. You can register there. It's also uh, at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, African History Network. Uh, dot com right on the home page so when you scroll down you go to the home page and you scroll down you see the information for uh, a radio show we're here uh, six days a week monday through friday 11 p.m to 12 midnight eastern standard time sundays 9 p.m to 11 p.m eastern standard time you can click here to listen to audio podcasts of all these shows i just uploaded some audio podcasts today you can click here to read articles i've written this is a episode of our show from uh, March 15th, 2021, the day after Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion performed at the Grammys. And we dealt with uh, that performance and WAP and negative weapon control hip hop and all this nonsense. Um, and the information's here. Okay, next class is uh, May 22nd. Click right here to register. Takes you to the next page. And click here to enroll. As soon as you enroll, you can start watching the content. Okay. All right. 
So I want to, uh, we're going to go back and uh, talking about the Mexican-American War of 1846 and how this uh, impacted slavery and the abolitionist movement as well. Okay. So if we look at this article, once again, from uh, history.com, um, this is then with uh, the Mexican-American War. Now, with losses adding up, Mexico turned to old standby General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. And I've heard uh, Dr. Claude Anderson talk about Santa Ana a lot. Uh, Dr. Claude Anderson is one of my teachers. So hey, we need to get him uh, on the show sometime soon. Uh, with losses adding up, Mexico turned to old standby General Antonio Lopez de, de Santa Ana the charismatic strongman who had been living in exile in Cuba. Okay. Now Santa Ana convinced uh, president James Polk that if allowed to return to Mexico, he would end the war on terms favorable to the United States. But when he arrived, he immediately double crossed president James Polk by taking control of the uh, Mexican army and leading it into battle at the battle of Buena, Buena Vista in February, 1847, Santa Ana suffered heavy casualties and was forced to withdraw. Despite the loss, he assumed the Mexican presidency the following month. Now, um, meanwhile, U.S. troops led by General Winifield Scott landed in Veracruz, Veracruz, Mexico, and took over the city. They then began marching toward Mexico City, essentially following the same route that Hernan Cortez followed when he invaded the Aztec Empire. OK, because the. Keep in mind, Mexico was conquered by the Spanish. Okay, this is why the dominant language in Mexico is Spanish, even though there are about 68 languages spoken. There's still indigenous languages spoken in Mexico, but Mexico was conquered by the Spanish. Now, the Mexicans resisted uh, Cerro Gordo and elsewhere uh, and elsewhere, but were bested each time. In September 1847, General Winifield Scott successfully laid siege to Mexico City's um, Chapo, uh, Chapotepec Castle. During that clash, a group of military school cadets, the so-called Nino's heroes, purportedly committed suicide rather than surrender. Now, what ends the, what ends the um, Mexican-American War? It's the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of uh, 1848, okay? So guerrilla attacks against U.S. supply lines continued, but for all intents and purposes, the war had ended. Santa Ana resigned and the United States waited for a new government capable of negotiations to form. Finally, on February 2nd, 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, February 2nd, 1848, establishing the Rio Grande and not the Nueces River as the U.S.-Mexican border. Okay. Now, under the treaty, Mexico also recognized the U.S. annexation of Texas. Okay, so the Texas becomes part of uh, the Union. Uh, uh, Mexico recognizes the U.S. annexation of Texas and agreed to sell California and the rest of its territory north of the Rio Grande for $15 million, plus the assumption of certain damages and claims. Now, this is going to reduce the territory of Mexico by one third. Okay, Mexico loses about one third of its territory. A few days before the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, gold is discovered in California. And we know that you're going to then have a gold rush in California in 1849, which is why the football team 
in San Francisco are called the 49ers because of the gold rush of 1849 in California and Cali and we know California used to be Mexican territory. Okay, this is why the San Francisco 49ers are called the 49ers because of the gold rush of 1849 in California. Now, uh, okay, so one of the consequences of the Mexican-American War is also the uh, Compromise of 1850. The Compromise of 1850. Read this article here, Mexican-American War from History.com. Compromise of 1850. All right, I, I want to go to, uh, we're going to go to clip, we're going to go to clip three, uh, Jalen, uh, dealing with the Compromise of 1850. Let's go to this clip. Hi, my name is Matthew Pence. Sorry, and, and here are a few things you need to know to sound smart about the Compromise of 1850. In 1850, things are way more complicated than before because it's the aftermath of the Mexican War, the acquisition of territory in the West, an era of great sectional strife, right after the gold rush in California of 1849, there's an awful lot of pressure over what to do about admitting a state in the West that doesn't have a history of slavery and might alter the sectional balance between slave and free states in the U.S. Senate. And in January of 1850, a senator named Henry Clay, who's famous as a compromiser in American history, he offered a package of proposals to try to adjust the sectional debate between the country over this issue. And the debate in the Senate was fierce and intense, some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. And they turned over the architecture, the engineering of this compromise package to Stephen Douglas, a younger senator from Illinois, a Democrat. And Douglas decided that the only way to get enough support for all of the different elements of the compromise was to break it apart and treat it separately. When it achieved final form as a series of separate bills in the fall of 1860, there were only five bills. One was about the admission of California as a state, a free One was about the organization of the Southwest Territories, New Mexico and Utah, without regard to slavery. One was about the adjustment of the border with Texas and New Mexico. One was about the elimination of the slave trade in the District of Columbia. And the fifth and final bill, and most important for Southerners, a tougher federal fugitive slave law. Afterwards, enough people were relieved that they felt like they had achieved a kind of compromise. Most historians realize it was a shaky one at best. And even though it appeared for a couple of years that it would succeed, very quickly the fabric of the so-called Compromise of 1850 fell apart. Paul, Paul's right there, Jalen. Thank you. All right. So that is um, some background information on the Compromise of 1850. We look at this piece here from history.com uh, on the Compromise of 1850. There's also uh, some good information on the Mexican-American War at Britannica.com. I just don't have time to get to that information. Um, Britannica.com, official website of Encyclopedia Britannica, because I looked at uh, their information as well. Um, I think we'll share a little bit of this information that ties into how um, the Mexican-American War ties into slavery as well. But uh, the Compromise of 1850. Uh, the Compromise of 1850 was made up of uh, five bills that attempted to resolve disputes over slavery in new territories added to the United States in the wake of the Mexican-American War of 1846. So historical events don't happen in a vacuum. They are the culmination of a sequence of, uh, of smaller events. And as a, one of my teachers, Professor Jane, uh, Professor uh, Kabahai Wapakamane says, 
um, to understand the existence of something, you must first understand the pre-existence of existence. To understand the existence of something, you must first understand the pre-existence of existence. So he says that it, it, it's not important to know necessarily the date that something happened, but to understand the sequence. Okay, now I'm a I'm a, a date person. I'm a, 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 a I want to know the date, the year, things like this. But the most important thing is to understand the chronology and understand cause and effect. And how these different events, the sequence of them leads to other events taking place. All right. Now. You have uh, so the compromise of 1850 was made up of five bills that attempted to resolve disputes over slavery and new territories added to the United States in the wake of the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848. It admitted California as a free state. It left Utah. And so the compromise of 1850 admitted California as a free state to the Union. It left Utah and New Mexico to decide for themselves whether to be a slave-holding state or a free state. Defined, uh, it, it defined a new Texas-New Mexico boundary, and it made it easier for slave owners to recover runaway slaves, made it easier for slave owners to recover runaway slaves under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The Compromise of 1850 was the mastermind of Whig Party Senator Henry Clay. Now, the Whig Party is founded in 1834. They're going to die out about the 1850s, okay? Um, and at this time, 1850, the Republican Party does not exist. The Republican Party comes into existence in 1854 as a result of the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 dealt with uh, the U.S. leaving it up to the inhabitants of uh, westward states, uh, those going into westward states, the, it's leave, it, the, the U.S. is not going to dictate to the inhabitants of these westward states whether they should have slavery or not is going to leave it up to them. That's the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, and you have abolitionist movements um, intensifying because of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Then in 1852, Harriet, Harriet Beecher Stowe writes her novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which really exposes America to the, to the horrors of slavery. And it sells 300,000 copies its first year out and becomes an international bestseller. Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, the essential uh, character of, uh, of Uncle Tom is based upon a runaway slave named Josiah Henson. Josiah Henson is a runaway slave from Maryland who uh, runs away with his family on the Underground Railroad. They go up north. They eventually go into Canada. He becomes a, a Methodist minister and, and he works on the Underground Railroad, becomes an educator. OK, Josiah Henson. Uh, Josiah Henson writes his autobiography. Harriet Beecher Stowe reads his autobiography and then creates this fictional character of Uncle Tom uh, based upon. Uh, uh, Josiah Henson. So in the, in the actual story, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uncle Tom was the slave who refused to beat black women, who would take uh, cotton out of his sack, put it into the sack of other slaves who could not meet their daily quota. OK. And um, it, uh, the the villain is uh, Simon Legree, the slave owner. And the um, the slave that runs behind Simon Legree is named Sambo. OK. So Uncle Tom was actually a good guy in the in the in the a fictitious story of Uncle Tom's cabin. His, his uh, the the name Uncle Tom somehow gets associated with somebody being uh, an African American being servile and, and and 
uh, obedient uh, to uh, white people, things like this. It may have something to do with the in about 1912, there was a uh, short film called Uncle Tom's Cabin that depicted a, um, a, a slave named Uncle Tom as being servile and obedient to white people, things like that. So that that may be why people get this confused about Uncle Tom. Um, but uh, the Uncle Tom and Uncle Tom's Cabin is not the um, uh, is not the personification of the Uncle Tom that people think of when they use that uh, term to derogatorily uh, refer to African-Americans who are subservient to Europeans. OK, so. Um, so research. Uh, Josiah Henson. There's an episode of uh, the Jeffersons where uh, Louise's cousin, I think it was, who's a butler, uh, schools George on the term Uncle Tom. Okay, he was played by the same actor who played Fred C. Davis on uh, The Alderman on Good Times. Okay, and he was also he portrayed uh, um, Fred's, I think, cousin Grady on Sanford the Son as well. Uh, 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 when um, when Fred's uh, when um, Grady marries this woman, and her daughter's name is Betty Jean, who's overweight, and uh, Betty Jean was left a dowry by her father, and uh, Fred wants Lamont to marry Betty Jean so he can get this money. Okay, so the the um, the man who portrayed um, Grady as uh, Fred's cousin. Um, he was also Fred C. Davis, the alderman on Good Times. And he was uh, Louise Jefferson's cousin, who was a butler on the TV show, The Jeffersons. And he um, he, he has access to the man. He's the white man. He's a butler for has a library in his home. So he reads books and he studies history. So he learns about um, Josiah Henson. So they talk about this on uh, the Jeffersons. All right. So back to the compromise, 1850. All right. Um, so read this article here, compromise 1850 from um, history.com. All right. Now, uh, there's a piece from Britannica.com dealing with uh, the Mexican-American War as well. And it talks about the Compromise 1850 as well. And, and I think we have this here. Let me see. Can we bring this up? What do we have? Uh, let's see. We, okay, no, we don't have it. But anyway, uh, the status of slavery in the newly acquired lands was eventually settled by the Compromise of 1850, but only after the nation had comparisonly close to civil war. When the Civil War came in 1861, many of the most noteworthy generals on both sides have profited from their battle experience in the Mexican-American War, including Confederate generals Robert E. Lee, uh, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, James Longstreet, George Pickett, Albert Sidney Johnston, um, Louis Armistead, and P.G.T. Beauregard, as well as Union generals Ulysses S. Grant, who later called the Mexican-American War one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation, uh, George Gordon Meade, George H. Thomas, and Joseph Hooker. In Mexico, the war discredited the conservatives, 
but left a stunned and despondent country. It also reinforced the worst stereotypes each country held about uh, each other. Normalization of relations after the war proceeded slowly. Okay. All right. Uh, so you can check out information on the Mexican-American War at Britannica.com as well. I, I want to go to this next story here, and uh, we're going to go to um, we're going to go to clip four, uh, Jalen. We're going to go to clip four. So uh, there was a story that came out on Thursday, May thirteenth, and this dealt with the uh, right-wing organization. Uh, Heritage Action, Heritage Action for America, Heritage Action for America. Uh, Mother Jones broke this story. We talked about this on our on our Friday show. You're going to hear a lot more about this. This ties into the voter suppression bills uh, that are in uh, 47 state legislatures. But leaked video, Dark Money Group brags about uh, writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country. Okay, Um, uh, Jessica Anderson the uh, executive director of the uh, Heritage Action for America organization said, we did it quickly and we did it quietly. We did it quickly and we did it quietly. So what happened was Mother Jones acquired this video that uh, this is from a uh, speech that she gave to uh, their supporters. And uh, in a private meeting in April of 2021, with uh, big money donors, and let me scroll down to this, with big money donors, um, the head of a top conservative group boasted that her outfit, her organization, had crafted the new voter suppression law in Georgia and was doing the same thing with similar uh, bills for Republican state legislatures uh, across the country. Uh, Quote, in some cases, we actually draft them for them. In some cases, we actually draft them for them, she said, or we have a sentinel on our behalf, give them the model legislation so it has the grassroots uh, from the bottom up top vibe. What, so it has the grassroots from the bottom up top vibe. So the, the Georgia legislation had eight key provisions that the Heritage Action uh, for America uh, uh, organization recommended, Jessica Anderson uh, said. And the Heritage Action for America is a sister organization of the Heritage Foundation. She told foundation donors uh, at an April 21st gathering in Tucson, Arizona, in a recording obtained by the Watchdog Group documented, documented, and it was shared with Mother Jones. Now, these provisions uh, included policies severely restricting uh, mail ballot drop boxes, preventing election officials from sending absentee uh, ballot request forms to voters, making it easier for partisan workers to monitor the, the polls, the voting polls, preventing the collection of mail ballots and restricting the ability of counties to accept donations from nonprofit groups seeking to aid in uh, election administration. All right. Uh, I, I want to go to this uh, clip here. This is from uh, All In with Chris Hayes. 
Chris Hayes is speaking with Ari Berman of Mother Jones, um, and, 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 and Ari Berman broke this story. Uh, Ari Berman has the byline on the story from uh, Mother Jones. Ari Berman and Nick uh, Sergi. Uh, leaked video shows right-wing group bragging about drafting GOP anti-voter bills. Okay, let's go to the uh, clip four, Jalen. In Texas, the state Senate is considering a bill that would, surprise, surprise, make it much harder to vote in the next election. As it's written right now, the bill would limit polling places and early voting, allow partisan poll watchers to videotape voters, which sounds awful. It's one of hundreds of such bills, mostly sponsored by Republicans, introduced in state legislatures across the country. Voting restrictions have already passed in 11 states under Republican control. Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Montana, Utah, and Wyoming. Many of the bills sound so strikingly similar, it's been pretty clear they weren't born in the organic laboratories of democracy. Tonight, we have a better idea of where the language in these bills is coming from. Mother Jones obtained leaked video of a private meeting between the Heritage Foundation and donors in Arizona last month. In it, Jessica Anderson, that's the executive director of a Heritage Sister Organization, appears to basically brag about helping write these voter restriction bills and give them a grassroots vibe. We're working with these state legislators to make sure they have all of the information they need to draft the bills. In some cases, we actually draft them for them, or we have a sentinel on our behalf give them the model legislation so it has that grassroots, you know, from the bottom up uh, type of vibe. <laughs> we have a sentinel give it to them so it has that grassroots vibe. After a comment by Mother Jones, Jessica Anderson responded, and I'll read the whole thing here. We are proud of our work at the national level and in states across this country to promote common sense reforms that make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. We've been transparent about our plans and public with our policy recommendations, and we won't be intimidated by the left smear campaign and cancel culture. Don't worry, Jessica. We are not here to cancel you. Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones, wrote the exclusive story today, and he joins me now. All right, give us context. What's the event? Who is Jessica Anderson, and what is she describing in the video you obtained? Hey, Chris. Well, thank you for having me back. So Jessica Anderson is executive director of Heritage Action for America, which is the sister organization of the Heritage Foundation. She is at an event on April 22nd in Arizona for their top donors, and she is going through and talking about how they are writing what she calls model legislation restricting voting rights all across the country. That Heritage is literally writing these bills for Republican state legislators in Texas, in Arizona, in Georgia, in Florida. And that's why we've seen so many bills suppressing the right to vote in such a short period of time that are all basically exactly the same. It's not a coincidence that's happening. Heritage is literally coordinating this effort and bragging about it at this donor meeting. Yeah, in fact, she, she talks about it. I mean, the, the, the Iowa thing is interesting. We did cover it on the show, by the way, and, and it was one of the first. Um, she says, we sort of did it and no one noticed, and we were kind of laughing to ourselves like we got away with one, more or less. Um, here she is talking about pressuring Governor Kemp in Georgia to not lose his nerve and to make sure to bulldoze through. Take a listen. I was able to sit down with Governor Kemp three days before he signed the election package in Georgia, and I had one message for him. Do not wait to sign that bill. If you wait even an hour, you will look weak. This bill needs to be signed immediately. Is Jessica Anderson's background, was she a Trump administration official, though, right? 
you know, she was a Trump administration official. I think what's so revealing about that is Heritage, from the very beginning, coordinated the entire campaign to pass voter suppression in Georgia. They helped write the legislation. They lobbied for the legislation. And then once the legislation passed, they said to Brian Kemp, you have to sign it immediately. And that's what he did. He signed it within an hour. They gave the same message to Republican governors in Arizona, in Florida, in Texas. They've done the same thing. The governor of Arizona rushed to, to sign a new voter suppression law just an hour after it passed in Arizona this week. Ron DeSantis signed the voter suppression bill in Florida as a Fox and Friends exclusive. So what you have here is one of the most influential dark money groups in Republican circles writing voter suppression laws in secret to make it harder for black, brown, and young people to be able to vote. I mean, this is a really shocking development for democracy. Yeah, and one of the things that you see in this presentation is they are very focused. You have the states doing this, and now there's this federal legislation. There's there's a, a, the HR1 and S, S1, um, or the For the People Act, which would be a, a sort of baseline threshold of voting access, which it would regularize across the country, as well as some campaign finance reform aspects, a bunch of other things. They have that, uh, Jessica Anderson, again, the woman that you saw there uh, who runs that Heritage Sister Network, a person you should know about who's doing a lot of work uh, that she would want you to know about. Um, she, she talks about killing HR1 and S1 as top priorities for them. She does. She says if they don't kill S1, we lose our republic, period. That's the language she used. So they have a two-pronged approach here. They're spending $24 million to make it harder to vote in eight battleground states, and they're trying to block the federal legislation that would make it easier to vote. And the, the fascinating thing here is that the, you have dark money funding and organizing voter suppression. That's the exact thing the For the People Act would stop. That's why the For the People Act has money in politics and voting rights combined, because this is what we're seeing. We are seeing an attack on voting rights that's being organized and funded by millions and millions of dollars in dark money. So these issues are connected. The only way to fix our democracy is to look at these issues holistically. And that's why conservatives and Republicans are so terrified of the For the People Act, because they know it'll fix our democracy in the very ways that they're trying to understand. Yeah, um, uh, amazing reporting as always, Ari. Jessica Anderson, we kept our promise to you. We are not canceling you. We want everyone to know about the work you're doing. Thank you so much, Ari. Okay, pause right there. Uh, very quickly here, if we look at this article from Mother Jones, uh, and let's get reporting there from uh, Chris Hayes and Ari Berman. It says, to create this echo chamber, as Jessica Anderson put it, who you heard there in the clip, Heritage, uh, Heritage Act for America is spending $24 million over two years in eight battleground states, Arizona, Michigan, Michigan, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Nevada, Texas, and Wisconsin to pass and defend restrictive voting legislation. All right, uh, those watching on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, and my YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel, keep watching. Uh, we're going to keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. We're out of time here on 9, 10 a.m. The Superstation WFDF. Remember, right now, let's correct your own behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And we'll talk to you tomorrow night. Peace. All right, stand by, everybody. We're going to keep going for a few more minutes. How's everybody doing? All right. If you'd like this type of information, also, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show. Or at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. This is a, helps us keep broadcasting six days a week, keep doing the research, stay on the air. 
Uh, you can still register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. So we deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. As soon as you register, you can start watching um, the class we just did this past Saturday. Uh, we do the classes live. You can watch us live, but they're all archives. You don't have to worry about trying to get home in a certain time or anything like that or getting up the, at a certain time. OK, they're all archived. Uh, we're going to post a link here and it's also on the homepage of our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Then I taught this class in February and March of 2021. So those sessions, they're archived as well. So you have access to that uh, as well. You can watch from around the world and I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have uh, book references, articles, video clips, um, everything. Okay. All right. I want to um, go to this next one here, uh, this next clip. So this is deep here with this video that's leaked from uh, Heritage Action for America. Anybody, so you have all these people saying, including African-Americans that don't understand politics, who, 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 who say our vote doesn't matter. If the African-American vote does not matter, why are people working so hard to suppress our vote? If the African-American vote does not matter, why are they trying to pass 361 pieces of legislation in 47 state legislatures if, if, if our vote doesn't matter? Why is Heritage Action for America trying to spend $24 million over two years in eight battleground states, Arizona, Michigan, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Nevada, Texas, and Wisconsin? They're targeting African-Americans. They're targeting uh, Hispanics, Latinos, et cetera. Well, if our vote didn't matter, why are they working so hard to suppress our vote? Now, every Tuesday, the group leads a, uh, a call with right-wing advocacy groups like the Susan B. Anthony List, uh, Tea Party Patriots, and Freedom Works to coordinate these efforts at the highest levels of the conservative movement. Quote, we, we literally give marching orders for the week ahead, Jessica Anderson said, all, uh, quote, also we're singing from the same song sheet of the goals that week and where the state bills are across the country. Now, days before the Georgia state legislature uh, would pass its sweeping bill, SB 202, rolling back access to the uh, rolling back access to the ballot. Jessica Anderson said she met with Governor Brian Kemp and urged him to quickly sign the bill when it reached his desk. She said, I had one message for him. Uh, she said that she's a former Trump administration official. Surprise, surprise, surprise. In the uh, Office of Management and Budget, she said, quote, don't wait to sign the bill. If you wait even an hour, you will look weak. This bill needs to be signed immediately. And that's what punk ass Brian Kemp did. Um, and so you had African, so, you know, you had African-Americans in, in, in Georgia that said they weren't voting for Stacey Abrams because Stacey Abrams didn't have a black agenda, even though her policies were more beneficial to African-Americans than Brian Kemp's policies. But then you let Brian Kemp get in office and Brian Kemp has an anti-black agenda. So you let Brian Kemp get in office and he has an anti-black agenda. An anti-black agenda is, is worse than not having a black agenda because policies can benefit you positively, even if it doesn't say black African-American. But Brian Kemp has an anti-black agenda. And we see it play out in, in policies like SB 202. But they didn't see that coming. Uh, 
All right. So uh, Brian Kemp followed uh, Jessica Anderson's advice, signing the bill right after his passage. Heritage called it a, quote, historic voting security bill, end quote. That's not a voter security bill. It's based upon a lie. It's based upon the lie that the 2020 uh, presidential election was was uh, wrought with uh, rampant uh, fraud and and the election was stolen from Trump. No, that's not true. Even 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 Donald Trump's attorney general at the time, William Barr, said there was no widespread voter fraud. This is, it's a lie. And they're trying to pass these bills based upon a lie. Now, Jessica Anderson says she delivered the message to Republican governors in Texas, Arizona, and Florida. Texas is the next big fight for uh, Heritage Action for America. Jessica Anderson and Heritage Action wrote 19 provisions, 19 provisions in a Texas House bill that would make it a criminal offense for election officials to give a mail ballot request uh, request form, a, a, to give a mail ballot request form to a voter who had explicitly asked for who had not explicitly asked for one and would subject poll workers to criminal penalties, subject poll workers to criminal penalties for removing partisan poll challengers who are accused of voter intimidation. It's expected to pass in the coming days. These are some sick people. These are some sick people, okay? This is why it matters who you vote for in the state legislature and for governor. Because I guarantee you, if Stacey Abrams had been governor of Georgia, when SB 202 came across her desk, she would have vetoed that bill. I guarantee you, if Stacey Abrams had been governor of Georgia, when SB 202 came across her desk, she would have vetoed that bill. I guarantee you, if Andrew Gillum was governor of Florida, when voter restriction bills come across his desk as governor of Florida, he would have vetoed the bill. Now, Ron DeSantis is going to sign it into law. Okay? Uh, but Andrew Gillum would have vetoed the bill. All right, the, uh, there's one other clip uh, I want to squeeze in here. So Michigan State Attorney General Jocelyn Benson was on um, the last word on Friday, uh, May 14th. Friday, May 14th, uh, Ali Velshi was sitting in for uh, Lawrence O'Donnell. And Jocelyn Benson, Jocelyn Benson is the State Attorney General I mean, I'm sorry, Jocelyn Benson is the Secretary of State for the state of Michigan. And they talked about um, this uh, revelation uh, in this leaked audio. Okay, we're going to go to this clip here in just a minute. Then I want to squeeze in the uh, segment from Roland Martin Unfiltered from Friday, May 14th. So I was a panelist on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Okay, how's everybody doing? Stand by. All right, let's go to this clip here. You know, naive me, I was asking you at one point about, are these states just watching each other and picking up on, on some of the legislation that's being passed in places? Uh, and, and you definitely had a sense that this was, uh, this was a little more organized than that. Yeah, and I think what was really uncovered this week is not just the fact that it has been a national coordinated partisan effort. It's also well funded. And it also explains the speed with which we've seen this, you know, manifestation of the big lie transformed into really bad election policy in states all across the country that are 
It's going to do a, a lot to make it a lot more difficult for people to vote and really allow for more partisan interference in election counting and certification, which is not a good thing for our democracy. There are states uh, like Georgia uh, or Arizona where there are Republican uh, legislatures and Republican governors, and there are states like uh, Michigan where you've got a Democratic governor. Uh, the uh, Jessica Anderson, the executive director of uh, Heritage Action for America, addressed that matter as well in this video. Let's listen. Now, there are other states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. We don't have governor's offices there that are going to sign these bills. We're still going to move them. We're going to put the marker in the state legislatures of where the, what the states need to do to tackle their reforms and to get these laws done. And we're going to do it with an eye that all of this needs to be safe and secure by the time we're at 2022. And then keep that eye on the ball with H.R. 1 and blocking that federal legislation. So on one hand, Secretary, I appreciate that they're saying the, uh, the, the quiet parts out loud, but there's a little bit of code in there. Despite the fact that um, she is saying what they intend to do, there's this code. We're going to do it with an eye that all of this needs to be safe and secure. This is a conversation you and I have had uh, very frequently, and that is that we don't have in any of these states a voter security problem that they are solving for. No, actually, the secure protocols that we have in place in Michigan and that are in place in states all around the country were were tested and highly scrutinized in 2020. And they passed in flying colors. We saw the most secure election in 2020 than we'd seen in our state's history, in our country's history. It was also marked by high turnout. Uh, and I also found it on that note really compelling that in this report you mentioned uh, the goals of, of this effort were, quote unquote, to right the wrongs of November. And really the the, the defining characteristic of the November elections was that they were so highly accessible and that so many people participated and there was such high turnout. I don't see what's wrong with that. I think it's a great thing. And, and again, that really speaks to the per per pernicious nature of this effort to really undermine people's ability to participate and hold their elected officials accountable through the vote. So one of the reasons that we, we continue to have this conversation is because you've done a good amount of research into both the rules and the, the changes that are being proposed. When Heritage Action for America was confronted with this report, the response by the uh, executive director, Jessica Anderson, was that we are proud of our work at the national level and in states across this country to promote common sense reforms that make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. We've been transparent about our plans and public with the policy recommendations, and we won't be intimidated by the left's smear campaign and cancel culture. Uh, again, their rationale, if they were talking to the average American who's wondering about the motivation behind it, the rationale is that there's cheating and fraud um, that are underlying some of these decisions. And that as you and I have discussed, in many cases across the country, the proposals being made to amend voting and the ability to do so don't actually deal with cheating and fraud anyway. That's right. They actually make it harder for people to get a ballot by eliminating the ability for people to send absentee ballot request forms. They make it harder to return a ballot by eliminating drop boxes or eliminating prepaid postage for folks wanting to vote by mail. They allow for partisan interference in elections, making it harder to, to safely and securely tabulate the vote. And in Michigan, there's a law that's actually could criminalize efforts by my office and local clerks to educate citizens about things as simple as where to find your polling place or how to register to vote. So there's nothing about these bills 
that make elections any more secure. But there's a whole lot of data to show these policies will make it a lot more difficult for people to vote and participate in democracy. Welcome back. Tomorrow, a plea deal. All right. If you, um, and also here, if we look at uh, this piece here, if we look at this part here in um, the article from Mother Jones, it says, uh, in response to a request for comment, Jessica Anderson said in a statement, we are proud of our work at the national level and in uh, states across the country to promote common sense reforms that make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. She's lying. Uh, it doesn't make it easier to vote. Okay. And when it talks about cheating, they don't talk about the fact that Donald Trump encouraged his voters in North Carolina to vote twice. They don't talk about that at all. We've been transparent about our plans in public uh, with our policy recommendations, and we won't be intimidated by the left smear campaign and cancel culture. Didn't you all just cancel uh, Liz Cheney as conference chair because she won't buy into the big lie and she won't lie and say uh, the election was stolen from Donald Trump? Didn't you all just cancel uh, Liz Cheney? So read the rest of this article here. Okay. Uh, leaked video dark money group uh, brags about writing GOP voter suppression bills across the country. This is from motherjones.com. All right, we'll post a link here on the thread. Now, uh, I want to go uh, quickly to this last piece. So I was on, uh, I was a panelist on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday, May uh, 14th. I'm a panelist on each Friday. And we discussed this crazy story. Uh, there was in the, in the House of Representatives, there was a uh, House uh, oversight hearing dealing with the um, January 6th insurrection. OK, and there's a big article from. There's a big article from uh, NBC News about this as well, but uh, Republican Republican loyal to uh, Trump claims Capitol riot looked more like. Uh, normal tourist visit looked more like normal tourist visit, and this was the testimony. Uh, this was uh, what um, Representative Andrew Clyde, Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia, said, uh, and he's a he's a, a a Trump loyalist. Okay, he makes no sense, and you had uh, Republicans at this hearing, Republicans who are actually members of Congress at this hearing who were trying to lie and say, oh, the insurrection really didn't take place. This really, this really wasn't an insurrection. Um, and they're trying to tell a, a revisionist history. All right. So we talked about this on uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday, May 14th. Um, multiple Republican, if we look at this article here from uh, NBC News, uh, multiple Republican members of Congress Multiple Republican members of Congress uh, on Wednesday, uh, May 12th, offered a false retelling. And we're going to pull up this. Uh, I'm going to pull up this article here from NBC News. They offered a false retelling of the uh, devastating events that occurred during the January 6th Capitol riot. All right, let's look at this here. 
Okay, Pope, uh, multiple Republican uh, members of Congress on Wednesday, May 12th, offered a false retelling of the devastating events that occurred during the Capitol riot, with one calling the entire event a bold-faced lie that more closely resembled a normal tourist visit than a deadly attack. This was said by uh, Representative Andrew Clyde, not James Clyburn, but Andrew Clyde, uh, Republican of Georgia. Uh, during, a House overs during a House Oversight Committee hearing on Wednesday, May 12th, uh, regarding the January 6th riot uh, or insurrection, Representative Andrew Clyde, Republican of Georgia, said the House floor was not breached and that the supporters of former President Donald Trump, who stormed the Capitol, behaved, quote, in an orderly fashion, behaved in an orderly fashion. You mean they were coordinated in their in their attempt to overthrow the government? We saw coordination with many of them, some of them with military fatigues on and weapons. We saw some of them working in coordination. Is that what you mean by orderly fashion? Now, the comments from uh, Representative Andrew Clyde and others on Wednesday marked the latest attempt by some Republicans to revise the narrative of what occurred and came just hours after House GOP members voted to strip Representative Liz Cheney, Republican of, all, of Wyoming, of her leadership position after she repeatedly criticized Trader in Chief Benedict Donald, uh, Donald Trump for his uh, lies that the uh, 2020 election was uh, stolen from him. All right. Now, uh, I'm going to go to this clip here from uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered. Now, we know that the uh, the Senate, uh, the Senate floor, the Senate chambers were breached, but the House chambers were not breached by the insurrectionists. But the Senate chambers were breached. OK. Um, so read the rest of this article here from. Uh, NBC News, Republican loyal to Trump claims uh, Capitol riot looked more like normal visit. And these are a bunch of delusional white nationalists, many of them. Uh, a bunch of white nationalists, white supremacists. I wanted, we talked about this on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, let's go to this clip. Uh, again, I mean, look, we, we've been sitting here uh, listening to these crazies, and they are indeed crazy. Uh, it, it makes no sense to me whatsoever uh, to listen to uh, how fanatical uh, and, and, and silly uh, these folks are. Uh, and, and like I say, this guy, Andrew Clyde, uh, I mean, you talking about just shake, just, just, just shaking the head. Uh, and so, um, so, so we got the clip. Let's play it. It's called the Capitol insurrection. Let's be honest with the American people. It was not an insurrection and we cannot call it that and be truthful. The Cambridge English dictionary defines an insurrection as, and I quote, an organized attempt by a group of people to defeat their government and take control of their country, usually by violence. And then from the Century Dictionary, the act of rising against civil authority or government re governmental restraints, specifically the armed resistance of a number of persons to the power of the state. As one of the members who stayed in the Capitol and on the House floor, who, with other Republican colleagues, helped barricade the door until almost 3 p.m. that day from the mob who tried to enter, I can tell you the House floor was never breached and it was not an insurrection. This is the truth. There was an undisciplined mob. There were some rioters and some who committed acts of vandalism. But let me be clear, there was no insurrection. And to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall, 
showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes, taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. There were no firearms confiscated from anyone who breached the Capitol. Also, the only shot fired on January the 6th was from a Capitol Police officer who killed an unarmed protester, Ashley Babbitt, in what will probably be, eventually, be determined to be a needless display of lethal force. Camera up. This hearing is called the Capitol. Here's how Democrats responded to that fool. Uh, Congressman uh, Jim McGovern of Massachusetts says, I was there that day, Representative Clyde, presiding over the House chamber while we were being evacuated. I saw people punching the glass doors the bare fist to get in, desecrating America's capital to obstruct Congress, calling it a normal tourist visit is sickening. Shame on you. Uh, Congressman Don Byer from Virginia, a normal tourist visit? Police officers who responded on January 6th were stabbed, gouged, beaten, suffered broken ribs. Y'all should be pulling these uh, tweets up. And there are no longer, and three are no longer with us. Republican leaders defend this kind of lying while they punish those few with the courage to tell the truth. It's despicable. Uh, Congressman Catherine Clark, Republicans aren't just trying to rewrite history. They're telling you not to believe your eyes or trust what you saw. Look at the video. Listen to the staff and officers. Read the death certificates. The insurrection was anything but normal, and it won't be erased. Folks, how crazy this is? Clyde was attending an event honoring police officers and was asked to clarify his statements about what he says didn't happen on January 6th. He said this. Okay, I don't know. We, we should have the sound bite there. Uh, Brittany, these folks are liars. I keep saying that if they're going to lie about this here, any Republican who lies about January 6th should be defeated in, uh, 2020, in uh, next year, 2022. You cannot trust any of these people in leadership. They need to be defeated. On a state level, federal level, they all should be voted out of office. Roland, we have to get them out because I don't know what in the cognitive dissonance is going on, but we all know what we saw. The insurrection on January 6th was on the front page of every newspaper worldwide because it was not just some normal tourist visit. That's not what makes international headlines. This was crazy. There was nuisance. People were injured. Someone did die. Several folks have been indicted on serious federal charges. I mean, but you know what? I'm actually not surprised by Representative Clyburn's remarks, knowing that he was one of the 126 Republican members to contest the election results. That's his game. He also was one of the 12 Republicans in the House who voted against H.R. 1085 to award those congressional gold medals um, to the United States uh, Capitol Police who uh, protected the U.S. Capitol when it happened. So, I mean, he's got to he's got to stick to what he knows he's, or what he's pretending to know anyway. Uh, look, uh, it, it makes no sense to me, Michael. Uh, but again, these people, you cannot trust any of them in leadership. And for the folks who say voting doesn't matter, we got to vote every single one of these idiots out because they are acting, acting as if what happened on January 6th was no big deal. And if that's the case, uh, they're going to, they're going to, they, they absolutely, if they take control of the House by 2024, they will mm -hmm. try to steal the election. That will absolutely. happen. Absolutely, brother. You know, white supremacy is a powerful drug rolling. You're dealing with the white nationalist party. This is exactly who they are. The, the, the hoods have come, all the hoods have come up. This is the white nationalist party. And there were a hundred, there were approximately 140, uh, uh, police officers that were injured, uh, that day, January 6th, the day of the insurrection. So for, uh, Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia, once again, Georgia has the largest Confederate monument in this country. Okay. For, for him to say, that uh, if you didn't if you didn't know it was from January 6th, you think it was a normal tourist uh, video. I would call it a terrorist video. 
you're close. It's not a tourist video. It looked like a terrorist video. Okay. And uh, so this is another example why elections have consequences and all these traitors have to be voted out of office. Because if you look at the policies that they're advocating for, they're detrimental to African-Americans and, 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 non, and many non-white people. Okay. They're detrimental to us. You, you just look at the, uh, about 30 of them tried to, uh, they're trying to get two bills passed in the, uh, in the House of Representatives to, to target uh, critical race theory. And things like the 1619 project that that uh, they uh, uh, unveiled that on Wednesday. Now, they're going to be defeated in the House, luckily, because Democrats are in control. But what happens if uh, uh, Republicans uh, win in the House in the 2022 midterm election? So, yeah, brother, we're dealing with we're dealing with the crazies. This is the QAnon white nationalist party. We're dealing with the crazies. And that's and, and, and that's why folks absolutely have to vote. All right. So that was from uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered. That's from uh, Friday, May 14th, 2021. We're going to post a link here to the entire show. Uh, you can uh, watch it also on Facebook at Roland Martin on Facebook and uh, Roland Martin on YouTube. Uh, we posted the link here to the um, entire video. Uh, okay, so back to this article quickly here from uh, NBCnews.com. Uh, name of this article is. Just a second. Name of the article: Republican loyal to Trump claims Capitol riot looked more like normal tourist visit. And this is uh, Georgia Representative Andrew Clyde, not Clyburn. Clyde, C L Y D E. Representative Andrew Clyde of the U.S. House of Representatives. He represents Georgia, uh, former Confederate state, but. Representative Andrew Clyde, uh, Clyde's account gravely contradicts the events of the day, gravely contradicts the events of the day. He's lying, which were captured on television and on smartphone videos from inside the Capitol. The insurrectionists released a cell phone video. They released the insurrectionists released video that contradicts what Clyde is saying. Now, were there some people who did not? Uh, commit acts of violence and things like this and just walked around, took pictures. Yeah, there were some people like that. But there were a bunch of people who were attacking police. There were hundred, approximately 140 police officers who were injured. One died uh, because of uh, the injuries he suffered. Two others committed suicide. All right. And, and then you had uh, some people who built a gallow on the uh, uh, U.S. Capitol grounds. They had a news. You have people running around chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. What type of tour? What type of tourism is that? So he's lying. Now, more than 440 people have been charged so far. I guess they were charged because they didn't do anything. More than 440 people have been charged so far with participating in the attack. Many have ties to right wing extremist organizations. The FBI has said five people died in events related to the attack. What type of what type of normal what type of normal tourist visit results in five people dying, Representative uh, Andrew Clyde? What type of normal tourist visit results in five people dying? What type of normal tourist visit results in 140 police officers being attacked by insurrectionists, white domestic terrorists? Now, prosecutors have said some of the hundreds of Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol were prepared for battle. What type of normal tourist event is that? What type of normal tourist visit is that? They were wearing helmets and tactical gear. 
okay? Several were seen on video or in phones carrying baseball bats and other weapons. The riot left the halls of Congress with broken windows, vandalized walls, and ransacked offices. Meanwhile, other Republicans during the hearing falsely painted the riot as an event that saw Trump supporters needlessly harassed by law enforcement authorities. Oh, really? Okay, uh, so read the rest of these dumbasses. You know, these, these are people need to be voted out of office. Now, just keep in mind, these are some of the same people that are going to vote on reparations. These are some of the same people that are vote on raising the federal minimum wage $15 an hour, even though that already passed the House of Representatives. Because in um, 2019, Democrats and the House of Representatives, they passed uh, 433 bills. 80% of them blocked in the Senate. Okay, in 2000, well, actually 2018, be because uh, Democrats took back control of the House of Representatives in January 2018. They passed 433 bills. 80% of them died in the Senate because uh, McConnell was Senate Majority Leader. But, to, but you need 60 votes in the Senate to get um, to raise the federal minimum wage $15 an hour. Now, it's already passed the House of Representatives, but you need 60 votes in the Senate. It's not clear that any Republicans are going to vote for that. All right. Uh so that's going to do it here. Uh, we're out of time. We'll be back uh, tomorrow. You can uh, support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App. If you'd like to, if you'd like this type of information, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App. Then also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN Show. And when you do it through Cash App, be sure to type in uh, dollar sign, the AHN Show, S-H-O-W, dollar sign, the AHN Show. It'll say Michael and have my name there. Somebody set up a, a fake uh, uh, African History Network Cash App account that's similar to mine. So I've already reported them. I'm waiting on the process to go through, the process to take its course. Uh, you can and, and also register for the online course that I teach, Ancient Chemical Moors and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. It's a nine-week uh, online course that I teach on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We deal with thousands of years of history and what led, led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We also do it the uh, ancient African presence in the Americas, including this land we call the United States of America. All right, we have to get out of here. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. <laughs>